Hi, I'm Ketki and I'm Sanaya. We're two curious overthinkers who love pop culture. In this podcast, we'll be dissecting pop culture and technology trends and how they're shaping everyday life. Ever watched a TV show or movie, read an article or heard a song that made you stop and wonder what it reflects about us and the way that we live our lives? That's where we come in. Welcome to Dude, I was thinking. Where no thought is too fleeting to dissect, analyze and follow down the rabbit hole. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Spiraling Into. This is a series where we let the conversation guide the flow of the episode and uh, let ourselves spiral down the rabbit hole over emerging themes in pop culture and society. Um today specifically we're talking about books, um reading and particularly how we read. What stories are we drawn to? How have our reading habits changed over the years? Um and to add more flavor to the episode and give us like an industry perspective, we also have a special guest who we've invited to spiral down the rabbit hole with us. Hi Chirag, welcome to the podcast. So Sanaya and I met Chirag at the Spotify Podcasters Day which was back in September of this year and we really hit it off and we learned that he is a writer and editor who's been publishing books for close to a decade. He currently works as a commissioning editor at Penguin Random House India and has previously championed and platform books with Rolly Books and Oxford University Press. Chirag has worked with authors such as Gulzar, Taslima Nasreen, Aruna Roy, Sabah Naqvi, Tarun Tehliani, Romila Thapar, Shashi Tharoor, the works basically and his writing has appeared in Scroll, Hindustan Times, Kashmir Reader and The Quint. So we knew that we had to have you on the podcast and so welcome to the podcast Chirag. We're so so glad that you could join us. Thank you Ketki. That's a really nice introduction. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited about spiraling into the world of books with the both of you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And hi Sanaya, co-host. Hello. Hi. We are back. Always happy to have someone to journey with us in this downward spiral or you know, we don't know the direction of the spiral yet. <laughs> yeah, and where it's going to lead us. So actually, let's kick things off. I actually wanted to start us off with like a really simple question. What is the last book that you read and how long did it take you to read it? Who wants to go first? I think since you're our special guest you should. <laughs> right. You're yeah. also the professional reader in yeah. the room. <laughs> yes, quote and quote. No, so I read this really fantastic book recently called How to Do Nothing Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny Audel. This had been in my mind in my TBR pile for a very long time and I took my own sweet time with it actually the past month for me has been a very intense one because i'm actually in bombay visiting my folks attending to a family health emergency so it's not like i've had a lot of downtime or leisure time apart from work but this has been a delicious read it's been like a balm to the currently ailing spirits of our family and it's been really sweet it's been a gift actually this book it's so instructive a lot of it is about the age we are in and what is really being done to us with the constant assault on our senses with our attention having become a commodity and how to resist that and make sense of this world so that's the last book i read and i took like a good 3 
weeks to read it, read it, like chewed it slowly, took it, you know, took my own sweet time. Because I also read for a living and for work, I do a lot of skim throughs of submissions I get and new ideas and manuscripts and proposals. So I read a, lo- a whole lot of those. And a deep read that I did in the last three weeks was another manuscript, which was yet to become a book by this writer called Nusrat Jafri, whose memoir, This Place We Call Home, I'm publishing later next year in April 2024, which is Dalit History Month. And I did a deep read, deep dive, deep structural edits to the manuscript before it becomes a book for the rest of the world. So that was also quite consuming and really rewarding. And hers is a remarkable story of three generations of Conversions within her family, she comes from a part Dalit, part scheduled tribe, denotified tribe family, whose grandparents converted to Christianity as ex Bhatus, the community that she comes from. And then her mother converted to Islam when she fell in love with a Muslim man. And the many kind of caste uh, journeys they've gone through, religious journeys they've gone through, the story of her aunts, her grandparents, the story of partition, her story. As a, as a woman in Bollywood, who's was making films, as a writer. What a brilliant story. What a brilliant story. And I cannot wait for the rest of the world to read it. Typically, if I'm reading for work, if it's a skim through, it takes me no time. But if it's a deep read, deeply invested read, I can take up to a month on a manuscript if I'm working on it. Because I want to do it as much justice as I, as I can. What about y'all? What is the last thing y'all read? Oh my God. Ketki, do you want to go first? I can. And actually, it's really fascinating. It's super cool that you mentioned the Jenny Odell book because that's been on my TBR list for a really long time. And I highly recommend. Yeah, I think I might just get to it after this. But some of the themes that she touches upon in that book, and I mean, obviously, I've just read about the book. I haven't read the book, but I feel like those themes, especially regarding the attention economy, can will be interesting to today's uh, conversation. I was thinking about this and like as I was like thinking about this particular question and asking you guys, I like did some reflection and I'm just like, there are many books that I read in this past year that I didn't finish. The last book, sadly, that I read and finished was back in August of 2022, which is this book called Future Sex by Emily Witt. And it's a really like thought provoking book about sex and desire where this writer, she catalog some of her experiences in alternative sexuality like things like polyamory sexual meditation etc and this is actually a book that I came across at a bookstore of a museum in London and Sanaya and I at that time were like working on our first podcast episode which was on like dating apps so I was like this could be interesting for us to read so I knew that I wanted to finish it for the podcast so I finished that book it's a really great book I highly recommend it But sadly, since then, and especially over the past year, I've started three books. I have bought many books, but I haven't finished like a single book, which I mean, I'm very ashamed to admit it. Don't be ashamed. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to say that. Don't be ashamed. It's it's really nice of you to admit. You're a victim of the attention economy. That's (laughs) That's what's happening. It got me thinking about just my journey with reading, like I used to be a really voracious reader as a child and early teen, 
like I would inhale books you know I would look forward to reading the next book right after I finished one it was built into like my daily routine and now it feels like one of those things that I need to kind of like push myself to do like I haven't been able to get back into like that same flow of reading that I used to be in as like a child early teen it's something that I like I feel like I really need to make reading like an active part of my day it's no longer the standard it's the exception we will like sort of get into this a little bit more but I really think the key thing that shifted and what what changed was as I entered my late teens I got a smartphone <laughs> and I just haven't read in the same way again basically but some of the books that I did start reading that I intend to finish some one of them actually I I gave up 70% in because I just wasn't enjoying it and I have to let myself like be okay with the fact that it's okay to give up books that you don't like um which is this book called Love is a Mixtape by Rob Sheffield I think I just wasn't really a fan of it I wasn't really a big fan of the writing but essentially it's a it's a book about um by this he's currently now a journalist at the Rolling Stone but it's a book about his deceased wife and his sort of like love story with her and how music played a role in their love story so it was an interesting premise but i think that i just wasn't a real fan of his writing but the other two books which i started and i want to finish one is the doctor and the saint by arundhati roy which is, explores castes from two varying perspectives one is from mahatma gandhi's perspective and the other is b r ambedkar and it's sort of like a you know it debates their opinions on caste and the second one is this book called less which won the man booker prize i think in 2019 by andrew shawn greer and it's a book about a gay man sort of going through a midlife crisis because he has just ended a relationship and he sort of goes on this like eat pray love type of journey around the world so it started off really well and i hope to return to it and i hope i finish it <laughs> so that's my answer i really think chirag this episode is going to turn into like a focus group for you to understand <laughs> and i how, love that i've yeah. already accepted the challenge but go on sanaya <laughs> yeah like it's going to turn into a focus group because some target demo out there is struggling to finish books because my reading stats are quite abysmal as well I did this thing like 5 years ago where I wanted to track all the movies and TV shows and books that I am consuming and I took a look at it before this episode and numbers are not so great. <laughs> I think that I'm like averaging at maybe 2 maximum 3 books a year. I take months to finish a book. The last book I finished was Snigdha Poonam's Dreamers. which is about you know young people in india their aspirations and she's like done great reportage it was very easy for me to read that i think what has helped me in my reading is actually me getting a kindle i've had to like accept that i am more comfortable in front of a screen than a page so i'm super happy on a kindle i'm highlighting things i'm like looking up the meaning of words i'm like impulse buying kindle editions of books <laughs> and they're right in front of me so i i'm not overly romantic about physical copies of books but yeah that's the last book i read i took maybe 3 or 4 months to read it the current book that i have been trying to read for almost a year because i've started and then abandoned and then restarted and then reabandoned it twice now is my year of rest and relaxation mm-hmm. and 
I believe that I'll finish it at some point. And, you know, it just, I think this question made me think about like, am I a reader? Because I know, Keti, you said you used to be a voracious reader. I feel like I have grown up on TV and the internet more than I have grown up reading books. So I'm constantly consuming content, which has been funneled straight into my brain since I was like 12 or 13. And I feel like very often I look at books as just a different medium for me to like receive a story. And if I want to receive a story, which is the best medium for that particular story? And sometimes it's a book. And that's the book that I finish, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yes, it does. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. I I had this curse where I stopped enjoying reading for leisure, for personal purposes of pleasure sometime in 2022, was it? Yeah. After the whole Omicron wave, that seems like it was from so long ago. And I was between jobs. And what broke the curse for me at the time was audiobooks. So if you're someone who is into podcasting, clearly the both of you are, I'm guessing you also listen to a lot of podcasts. So if it's listening as an act of, let's say, uh, leisure that the both of you or either of you have enjoyed, then I strongly recommend trying out a good audiobook. And on the top of this list won't be Prince Harry's Spare, yeah. which he recorded in his own voice. Um, or like which... Britney Spears, the memoir, <laughs> or Michelle Williams. Yes, yeah. yes. But I, I recommend to break this curse to a lot of people, Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows by <laughs> Balikor Jaiswal. It's actually a novel. It's not erotic stories for Punjabi widows. It's just a playful title. But it's a comedy of errors novel recorded by this Indian origin British actress called Meera Sial. So she's done the audiobook. And it is so well done. It is so well done. I promise you, if you've been resisting, you know, committing to a full finished work because you're getting distracted, this is something you might enjoy. It might break your reading curse because it doesn't matter if you're reading on a Kindle, if you're listening to the book, or if you're actually looking at the analog printed form, paperback or hardback, the fact that all of us are accessing stories irrespective of the media is what's exciting. And I think we are all this generation, the sort of early millennial, late millennial, I don't even know what Gen Z's are going to do, is going to go through this real churn. And it's so great that everyone is talking about it. Actually, pretty much a lot of my friends are saying that they're not able to finish a book, they're not able to commit to a book. But anyone who's not enjoying a book, I just very clearly tell them that drop it. If you don't like it, drop it. Gift it away to someone. The book everyone's talking about this year, which has broken a lot of people's reading curse, irrespective of the format, print, audio, or ebook, is Yellow Face by R.F. Guang, because that's a book that... Uh, typical non-readers have also enjoyed. So that's the book of the year, according to me, that's broken a lot of people's Bought that curse. for Katie on her birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, have maybe she'll it? get to it. <laughs> I will. I hope I do. But actually, I have a follow-up question here, which is, do you think that there is an inherent value in reading a physical book versus listening to a audiobook? And I think it leads me into like a larger question, which is, what is your preferred format of like reading a book? Because 
what you're describing, you know, I have tried audiobooks, but the thing is, I think and it's a mental block that probably I will need to work through because I used to be such a voracious reader. And books are something that I feel like I attach a real like sentimental value to. I tend to be a purist about them and I'm like the only way in which I can enjoy a book is if I read the physical book. And the irony um, is that you're not enjoying this. <laughs> you're not enjoying no, it. But the thing is personally I don't think it's that I'm not enjoying it. It's just that my attention has gone to shit. <laughs> it's short it's real... answers no. The short answers really no. I don't attach any value to right. form. I don't think that makes sense anymore to do that. To be a purist about the form and the technology in which you will read the story or consume the story is counterproductive. I don't think it's going to take us anywhere. So maybe it'll help to shed this notion for yeah. you to be able to redevelop a friendship with stories, right? Yeah. And what does reading really do? What is the act of reading? It's like a magic portal that someone's creating for you someone's kind enough to create a life world, a cosmology, someone's life world, let's say it's fiction, and they're letting you into it. It doesn't matter if it's printed or if it's photocopied or if it's downloaded from one of those websites that shan't be named or whether it's, you know, an audiobook or a Kindle edition. It doesn't matter if it's a serialized form where, you know, an episode drops every week. Look, a lot of streaming has taken over whatever time we are left with, you know, I think I've already finished four episodes of the last installment of Crown that just dropped on Netflix because I am deeply in love with that show. I love and it. And I ca cannot wait for the second part of the last season. But at the same time, it takes conscious effort, I guess. It's a bit of habit building also here, which is at play. That might help in order to sort of break this curse. But I think there's no rush like... If it's not happening for you, it's not happening for you. And when it'll happen for you, it'll you'll be surprised how how effortlessly it might. I fully agree. I know that this is like a a block. But the other thing for me also is like with an audio book or reading something online is that it's not distraction free. Like I don't know if I have ADHD or it's like tendencies, but I I feel like you don't. I don't know. But <laughs> it's a self diagnosed at this point. But I just feel like the act of reading a physical book outside of the fact that like there is like a sentimental value to I mean I'm somebody who like writes in my books and things like that so I like objects you know which you can see like that a human has touched this and you know there's like some kind of meaning I just tend to be that person so there's this like tactile aspect of it but the other thing is that it keeps me off of a screen which I think I need and the thing is if like if I'm being really honest with myself like sometimes when I'm just like at home by myself and I'm thinking about like what can I do that doesn't require me to be on a screen? The first thing that I think of is reading a physical book. From that perspective, I do place a real value to the act of reading. And I don't know, like from even from like a cognitive, you know, perspective, like, is it better for our brains to be reading words as opposed to like listening to them? I don't know. Or if it like challenges us in a certain way, improves our, you know, all of those different things. I'm not sure about all of that, but I do... Huh. I know that like it's like one of those things that I, I tend to prioritize but clearly like Sanaya yeah. says like it's not that I'm not enjoying it but it's something that I'm struggling with because and that sort of brings me to like that this question about like the attention economy which is that there are so many things vying for our attention at this point in time right like it's I can't choose what it is that I must give my attention to 
in any case and a book is basically at right at the end of that list so yeah. i think that's the real issue here more no. than anything else the other thing that i think helped me was listening to a book or a podcast a long form podcast while walking because there is a kind of kinesthetic there's a kind of somatic movement of the body involved so there's this long form podcast that i really enjoy by amit varma it's called the scene and the unseen very invites writers public intellectual artists policy makers all kinds of people and he does like a deep deep dive with each of his guests and gets into all aspects of their life so each episode is on an average about 3 to 4 hours some of his episodes have spanned to 5 6 hours and i have heard sometimes if i've really liked the guest an episode over 5 or 7 or 12 evening walks right mm-hmm. and maybe i've heard an episode over 20 days but the act of walking and observing things around me for instance because i live in delhi i have access to lodi gardens and sundar nursery which are in my neighborhood these spaces are a gift yeah. but not in this weather currently <laughs> we are in november where the you know air quality is at its worst but i mean the pleasant months of the year the act of walking and just looking at the trees around me observing the biosphere in which i exist and then listening to someone's work carefully recorded someone talking about their life work as as it were or an audiobook really helps me focus better it has yeah. really helped me focus better so perhaps you tie uh, or commute a lot of people swear by their kind of commute time to work especially if you're using public transport or an uber or whatever and they're able to listen to podcasts finish like let's say a chapter a day but what really helps is breaking down let's say the podcast episode you want to listen to the audiobook or the book you're reading in a smaller achievable targets right so if you commit to like 30 pages a day or a chapter a day that's a lot more easier way to you know tackle finishing the larger beast yeah i i have a theory about the reading curse and why it exists and the attention economy generally i actually feel like we are reading all the time we're just not reading books so if we just sort of expand our notion of what the act of reading is i think that reading instagram captions you're still reading yeah. you're scrolling through twitter you're still reading i don't know how many emails i read yesterday but i read them all i had to okay sending text messages your communication with people in your life involves reading and also some amount of drafting and writing right so if you're being like very loose with these definitions and i don't know if someone some day is going to invent an ai tool to calculate the aggregate number of words that we read every day by just being on our phones and communicating and being on social media and consuming information whether it's an article or if it's like a four word tweet i want to see what that aggregate number of words is and then if you translate that into the pages of an average book average font size how many pages of random content whether or not it is communication or if it is actual social media content are we consuming every single day and my sense is 
that we are easily reading around 40 to 50 pages of this kind of loose, disaggregated content that is vying for our attention at the same time. And if we're spending this much time reading the act, we're committing the act of reading. Are you going to tell me that in your free time, here's a book, 300 pages long, enjoy this process. Hmm. So, you know, I think about that a lot, which is why I completely agree with Chirag that the form sometimes is working against us because more important than the act of reading is the story and this world that is opened up to you or a feeling that you get from entering that world. And reading may not necessarily be the way that you get there because it's ultimately not a question of time. Like if Chirag is listening to Amit Varma for, you know, 12 evening walks, I listened to five podcast episodes between yesterday and today. And that's like six hours of me listening to something. And I'm absorbing. It's not that my attention was here, there, everywhere. It's like I am still absorbing whatever is being said. It's just that our everyday lives involve reading for not fun reasons. So maybe the nature of that activity has necessarily evolved. Like, why is everybody struggling with this? Why is reading curse a thing, right? So that's my hot take that we're actually reading more than before. No, I love that. I love that hot take and generative AI could never because you've already, you know, fully put together this theory. Kitki, you were saying. It is a really, really like fascinating take, Sanaya. But like the only thing that I think of here is it is important to like factor in like shortening attention spans here as well, right? Like because you're saying even if we're reading 40, 50 pages a day, it's the way in which we're reading is different versus reading a book, right? Bite-sized information. So even, you know, given that, that's why a book probably feels so daunting because it's like committing to one thing for an extended period of time and giving it your... You're able to watch a movie. Martin Scorsese just released an obscenely long movie that people were engaged throughout. Mm. And, you know, Amit Varma is consistently releasing like eight hour long episodes of his podcast. People, there's an audience for this. And... I don't know, like Chirag, I guess, what is, I guess, the industry perspective on this in terms of attention spans? Yeah, like, I think it'd be interesting, like, how is the publishing industry approaching this? <laughs> like, how are they trying to, like, sort of keep up? Well, that's a great question. Look, the publishing industry has always been very aware of the trends and very aware of what's happening and has responded to it, therefore, quite immediately. So one of the first things that suffered in this process because attention spans are shrinking is the length of the work, mm. right? Gone are the days when you wrote and published tomes with exceptions, of course. So at least in India, the average length of the work, which you know, which typically rests at like a comfortable place of 80,000 words or 90,000 words or a lakh, is starting to come down to 60, 30, 20, 25,000 words. Like if you've read, you know, this phenomena that's happened in publishing in the last couple of years, this is writer called Ankur Variko, who has these books called Do Epic Shit and Get Epic Shit Done. And we have three new books coming out with him in the next three years. The length of the work itself that he has created, it's not very long. 
These are very easy, bite-sized, accessible quickies, if you like. So the first thing that's happened is that Avishin has been able to tailor the quantity that people are able to digest. You know, the Instagram world or the TikTok world calls this snacking. People want snackable content, right? So there's that average attention span of three, 30 seconds to four minutes. Like traditional newspapers, for instance, or traditional news houses have seen that people spend about 90 minutes a day on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, but spend about an average of three and a half, four minutes on news websites, be it like a New York Times or a Guardian or an Indian Express or Scroll or wherever it is that you access news. And I hope it's not the Swaraj magazine of the world uh, <laughs> where you read your news. But that's the that's the alarming number. The other thing that's changed is that publishers are able to tap into trends, right? So we are constantly giving book contracts to people who made it big in the world where people are spending their time. So if TikTokers and Instagrammers and influencers have audiences hooked, right, have people really invested in their content, a lot of them are getting book contracts. Publishers are doling out contracts to influencers and content creators on your social media apps and platforms on a weekly basis, I would say. So, and of course, there are quality checks. There's a lot of handholdings. The amount of influencers who've risen and found a place in the publishing landscape of the past decade or so around the world, might I add, um, it's quite fascinating, right? So who is the traditional writer? Like the, the traditional writer is not that person who's sitting in a study in a remote cabin somewhere in Missouri or somewhere and finishing their life's work or this crazy novel. That's not the image of the traditional writer anymore. So publishing is able to constantly evolve and open up the canon of who gets to be a writer, right? Like a beauty influencer gets to be a writer, a gut health influencer gets to be a writer, an Instagram chef gets to be a writer, you know, like a smart investment finance Instagram mega, mega celebrity influencer gets to do a book on teaching young people on how to grow money and, you know, how to sort of make it in life. Instagram poets get book contracts. I mean, remember Rupi Kaur? So, um, and whether or not you like her work, she took a really strong stand on Palestine. So, great respect to her. So, you know, there are many ways in which publishing is always able to keep up with this. In fact, it's able to co-opt this attention economy crisis that we find ourselves in and profit from it. I think that's just the nature of the business and the beast. Mm. I mean, this is super interesting because... Just yesterday, like the notion that the idea of a writer and who a writer is, is expanding because the way in which people read and consume content is changing. It just made me think like, you know, what is good writing? Because it's like very difficult. It's very difficult to deconstruct because our traditional notion, as you said, of like, you know, lonely writer in a cabin writing, we have to kind of do away with that. So what is good writing? Is it, you know, well-constructed sentences, great plot, hard-hitting story, beautiful descriptions, hard-hitting dialogue? Is it that the words are being used well? Is it that old words are being used in a new and interesting way? And for me, I think what is good writing is incredibly subjective. But for me, I think like good writing is when an author 
is able to guide a reader with some amount of ease. And I think that's important. I don't think good writing is necessarily inaccessible and difficult to read. I think good writing is often what is easy to read. And it's the author guiding readers towards an idea that they probably already know, but haven't articulated yet, while still providing some kind of new insight or illuminating something new for the reader. And I feel like, firstly, I think that what I've described is very close to therapy. So I think good writing <laughs> is, good writing, I think, is therapeutic on several levels. But this idea that, like, let's say Ankur Variku is something that is catching fire right now. And it's what people are responding to. So it's also evolving what writing is. And maybe writing has to be something that is more easily digestible, more easily getting you to where you want to go. And in, I guess, going back to what we were talking about earlier, making reading more, write, good writing is what makes reading enjoyable. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Look, I'm afraid there's no simple answer to this question. When, for instance, Chetan Bhagat and the lights emerged and in a sense broke records, shattered records and sold in the kind of numbers that publishing in India had never seen books sell, apart from, let's say, textbooks, because they have to sell every year, because we have students enrolling in schools and colleges every year, and yeah. they're recurring, they recurring businesses. So that's a different kind of publishing world we're talking about. But when this happened, a certain kind of older, more conservative, uh, purist, traditionalist publishing ecosystem frowned upon it, right? That, oh, are Chetan Bhagat's books really books? And how can people like it? And, you know, they would take a big dump on that kind of writing, which is not only elitist, it's grossly not in touch with the realities of the India that we live in and the India that stepped into this modern century, right? So the coming of the millennia, the ushering on the, of this 9% growth rate and the India shining, India rising story, the telecom revolution, the IT revolution, the coming of malls and cinemas and multiplexes, right? Not very long ago, by the way, just like about 10, 15 years ago. And the penetration of um, telephony and internet into like the smallest of places in the world. There was a chord that was struck, right, that Chetan Bhagat's writing managed to do. But if you traditionally ask, let's say, somebody sitting on the Booker Prize committees deciding on, on awards every year, they might not think of it as high literature or good writing. But it is good writing for somebody whose yeah. first yeah. English book it might Absolutely. be. Absolutely, yeah. Somebody who comes from, let's say, vernacular education, uh, Indian languages. It might be someone's first English book ever that they may have had access to that yeah. they would have greatly enjoyed, right? And so, so then... Is it good writing? Of course it's good writing. If you ask like this question to the market and only a market-driven response would be good writing is what sells. Mm -hmm. What sells is good writing. But that would be a very myopic and a very specific take, right? Not all writing that sells is necessarily good writing. But if it sells, then it's good for business. But for those of us who assess every day, what we publish and also what we don't publish. We gatekeep um, yeah. culture, as it were. Um, 
there is a lot that you're trying to balance. We often say yes to, all the time say yes to books that are driven by passion, that are driven by integrity, that are driven by love, that are driven by labor, um, that are driven by craft, right? So you have um, precedence basis which you're able to judge a good story for the conviction with which it is told, for the the joy uh, that it brings to you when, it, when you read it. And a lot of these decisions are based on socialization, um, you know, the, the the values one grows up with. And the other big thing that you're trying to balance is sellability. So, yeah. so while the books that sell, whether or not they're good writing, they actually bankroll the, what is traditionally considered good writing. And a lot of times, sometimes what happens is that somebody who's a great writer and who does quote-unquote good writing may not find an audience until their third, mm -hmm. fourth, fifth book, right? For them to really get recognized as a good writer, it takes sometimes that amount of work. Um, so it's a tricky thing to really answer. And a lot of it, as you said, uh, Sanaya, it's, it's so subjective. Depending on your vantage point or how you're approaching this, what sort, what sort of stakes do you have in this? You're going to be able to answer this in, you know, your capacity, each person. Yep. Because um, if I enjoy Salman Rushdie's latest, Victory City, um, or his upcoming memoir called Knife Meditations on Nearing Death, um, to someone else, it might be absolute crap, you know. Like to someone, it might be a really bad <laughs> book. But to me, it might be one of the most anticipated books of the year um, yeah. that I know I'm going to devour. So it is It is a very tricky question, really, uh, to answer. Yeah. But I hope I did my best. Yeah. No, no, you, you did. And I, there's another question that we had been discussing before. And like you touched upon it, like the role of like gatekeepers and tastemakers, like publishing houses, like the Man Booker Committee, is often to sort of identify what is culturally impactful, right? What is likely to have cultural significance? And this is a question that I'm generally interested in when it comes to music, when it comes to movie, like what is cultural influence? Mm -hmm. And I think about like, for example, the Penguin modern classics or Penguin classics. How does Penguin decide which book qualifies to be a classic? What are those parameters? Because would Ankur Variku, let's say in 2035, would do epic shit be a modern <laughs> classic? Like would, would Chetan Bhagat, the fact that it does have cultural significance, like you said, for a lot of people, it's the first accessible English language book for so many people and people do resonate with it. And it it sold it did it did the numbers it also reached so many people so do you have any can you provide any insight into that process of like who makes how this decision is made what the decision is based on it's a great question as you know penguin classics is one of the most prestigious lists that exists in the world it's a very identifiable product it's something a lot of people associate a great deal of nostalgia with mm -hmm. well the short answer to one part of your question is whether in 2035 or 45, 
Ankur Variku will make it to the Penguin Classics list is actually no, because it's a genre-driven list, right? So it's mostly literary. It's a genre. So the classics list is a literary genre. So literature will make it to it. And Ankur Variku would qualify into the self-help or business sort of categories. So those books don't make it to classics because classics has a specific literary identity. It has a DNA um, when it was created, when Sir Alan Lane commissioned that list. Um, and it used to be many years ago a translations-driven list, right? Mm-hmm. The idea behind that list was um, world literature in world languages translated into English and made available to the uh, Anglo-Saxon reader. And then it evolved to become also a list which included original writing in English. This I speak of of the past century of yep. a time long gone. And over the decades, it's evolved to be a trans- literary translations plus English language writing uh, combined list. And in terms of modern classics, there is a kind of loose uh, rule that I know of that we follow, which is that a book, if it's about 30 to 40 years older, when it was mm-hmm. first published, it makes it to uh, modern classics. So in the Indian case, for instance, uh, Mando, Bhisham Sahani, um, Amitabh Ghosh's Shadow Lines, for instance, is mm-hmm. about over 30 years old now, has now made it to the um, the latter has now made it to the modern classics list. The black classics are works that are slightly older, belonging to the earlier half of the previous century and before. And that's right. also a very oftentimes translation-heavy list because until Tagore, in India, the novel or poetry or short story, the three dominant forms of literature in India, there was not a lot happening in English, right? Mm-hmm. So Tagore is the first kind of well-known globally known Indian writer who did all three forms. He did poetry, he did the short story, and he did the novel and novella. Of course, there were attempts, there were some before him, there were some at the time that he was writing. And a lot of the other forms that were being written in were written in the Indian languages. So you had Marathi, Bangla. And then if you go back further, people wrote in Sanskrit and in their other indigenous languages, um, so those kind of become also black classics. Yeah. Um, so that's really, so there's a kind of prestige attached to this list. Um, it is purely driven by literary contribution. Whereas self-help business and, you know, those kind of genres, yeah. even like a cookbook that's published today, 30, 40 years later, even if it's a bestseller, is highly likely not to be part of the classics list unless the classics list goes through a reinvention Mm-hmm. Um, plans if if there are any it may happen you know you never know I, I say never say never it may happen what qualifies as literary might go through changes that we might yeah. not be prepared for but my my intuitive sense is that um, let's say a business or a self-help book may not make it to the classics list if that makes sense five point someone <laughs> turning 20 next year that's what that was going to be my next question because yeah that is still like a book. Was it five? Is it three point someone? I think three point uh, someone. Five point. Uh, I think it was five point seven. But you know, oh, I don't okay. have the burden to answer this question because <laughs> these are not penguin books. <laughs> oh great! Oh okay, yeah. of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah, I guess the other part of this question was okay. Shadowlands is making it to the list, but what? Like, what are the factors that determine its classic status? Modern classic status? Is it? 
how are you defining its impact how are you defining its literary worth is it maybe influenced writers who have come who have written books afterwards is it the just purely commercial success a combination of the two has it changed the course of like the way literature is produced in india like how do we make this yeah. retrospective analysis i think like what makes a story valuable i mean or or a book valuable like you said right there's so many factors to it one is i guess like the the actual story inherent like with with chetan bhagat's book like you said the language may not be as sophisticated but he sort of like you know he put a pulse or like shed light on on a new kind of you know um story that perhaps like other indian writers were not really exploring or writing about and that really made that really moved the needle in some way but when it comes to the actual like sophistication of his writing that may not be at par with somebody else that won you know another award or was con- or or who could be considered to be a classic in the future that came around at the same time that chetan bhagat did so i like i i'm also really interested in knowing like what is the exact criteria right yeah like i really cannot speak of his work in the classics context but yeah. um, there's <laughs> but generally he's archetypal yeah. he's archetypal yeah. right now yeah right right look it's a timeline driven thing it it has to be a couple of years ago as i said um and has to be at least 30 40 years ago and it's driven by a combination of literary merit commercial success critical acclaim those are the things that you factor in right what kind of waves did it create what kind of conversations did it generate in today's sense of the word did it break the internet then <laughs> you know <laughs> right. um and it and the, you could just loosely interpret that right it could mean uh, did it create waves and ripples was it able to sort of do to the world and the business of storytelling um great wonders was it something that a lot of people were talking about was it the literary event of that decade or the year like we know arundhati roy's works um mm-hmm. will sooner or later feature into right in in that direction it will move in that direction so it would have to be a combination of commercial success literary merit and critical acclaim those are really the factors that you work with you know i didn't i didn't think that i would find myself talking about chetan bhagat as much but it's interesting now that we think about his book because his book 3. someone also 5.1 yeah oh, why do i keep saying 3. someone sorry 5. someone it it influenced or i think the the, the movie 3 idiots was either bor- i think there was some controversy around that also whether they didn't credit him when they made the movie but it was kind of inspired by this book but that movie was i think it was a massive hit and i think it it sort of like ignited conversations that we weren't really you know talking about and i think that also it's it's interesting to see how like movie adaptations of books can also shape zeitgeist and also like could potentially move a book from like you know i, I don't know i mean it, it 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 can also like speak to the legacy of a book so it's just a thought that had just come up to my mind right now as i thought about chetan bhagat but that's an maybe that's some, i don't i wonder if like that's something that would be factored in in the future um when we think about books and their legacy that's a great question and some of it also speaks to you know the earlier bit the earlier part of this conversation that we were having um 
you know, if if you're not reading, then is there something wrong with you? And, you know, all the guilt that's associated with it. Look, a lot of great cinema, a lot of great streaming content, television shows that we've seen over the past few years. Um, I wish someone would do like a data-driven account of how many of them were adaptations. Um, mm. You look at Sacred Games, you look at Trial by Fire, uh, you look at Bridgerton, you look at any mega success of this year, last year, the past few years, I would, I'm inclined to say that more than half of them happen to be adaptations of books. Um, because I think we're also at this really exciting time where the book is able to sort of funnel and fuel the life of a story mm-hmm. and give it a new kind of um, form, right? So it's it's yeah. funding, te- technically, it's funding the world of stories. There is There has been a crisis of um, what kind of stories to tell. Um, and I think the formula-driven television shows, the formula-driven movies have stopped working. We've seen that. And there is this kind of great hunger of good, good, well-written stories which lend themselves to easy adaptations. So you'll be surprised that a lot of books in the fiction, non-fiction space that we publish regularly go into options, regularly go into sale of uh, adaptation rights um, that a lot of production houses, television studios, network studios then adapt and they take their own time, of course. Sometimes a book gets adapted um, not directly, but it goes into the research corpus of uh, a show that's being made. So, in fact, a lot of the content that you will see uh, in the coming years, the slate that most of the streaming studios have announced um, have have actually a very heavy percentage and dose of adaptations because there is genuinely a crisis of good stories. There is genuinely a crisis of content. And there is also this compulsion with this extremely scary competitive times that we are in when it comes to streaming Mm -hmm. with so many players that have entered the market. There is this need that is felt that we need to keep dropping. Netflix kind of introduced this big problem that you drop a thing every day, right? Netflix came with this promise that something will get dropped on the platform every day. So they are constantly scouring and and scavenging for stories and publishers have been doing this for centuries saying here is a gold mine waiting for you to dive into take what you like pay the publishing house and the writer a decent sum of money and go ahead take that story and make it wild make it what you like you guys mentioned um, Martin Scorsese's latest three and Mm -hmm. a half hour long movie um, Killers, Killers of the, of the Flower, Flower Moon, Moon. Yeah. adaptation. Also yeah. an adaptation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I I don't have the the numbers at the back of my hand right now, and I'm not able to think of more examples. But it's it's insane how many adaptations, yeah. commercial successes when on when seen on screen. I really love that this conversation has like broadened from like reading to stories like what are the stories that Mm -hmm. we want that are on offer how are we how what is the delivery mechanism for a story rather than are we reading enough right so I think like there was this one question that we were discussing which is you know what are the stories that we are drawn to 
because if you think about like the classic definition of a story it usually has like you know well defined narrative structure beginning middle end climax the hero's whatever. journey the hero's journey whatever it what however you want to call it, d- define it right and i think about other media whether it's podcasts whether it's um like films. tv shows yeah. or films i think that they have these technological affordances that allow you to deconstruct that story format and you know um maybe it's through like creating an immersive world maybe appealing to different senses it offers new tools with which to tell stories in a way that i sometimes think about like can books do this like can can a book make me feel as immersed as you know imax 3d big screen i don't know uh what's an what's an immersive what's an immersive movie that we watch where you feel like you're completely oh right avatar i haven't seen it because i'm i wasn't into it but everything, i know everything everywhere all at once everything that's a great example because that is the best example of like a classic story but told in a completely different format it's non linear it has worlds within worlds within worlds quite literally and it's tell, it's 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 a story about family at the end of the day and i sometimes wonder like do does the medium of a book offer scope for that kind of innovation like have you seen this like when you're commissioning new ideas do we think about innovations in writing innovations in storytelling something that's non linear a book that i saw did this was um written by uh the creator of Bojack Horseman Raphael Bob Waxberg and it's a it's an anthology called someone who will love you in all your damaged glory for example it's just short stories and one of the short stories was like a to-do list right and it's just playing with form storytelling and the the form of the book in interesting ways that immediately draws me and engages me so yeah i'm just curious to know how adaptable a book would be to different ways of telling stories that's a great question my sense is that big traditional publishing houses are a little cautious about experimenting with form mm-hmm. um but they're not averse to it if you look at terribly tiny tales which are these horror yeah. stories which were like three sentences five sentences long yeah that's become a book a lot of let's say instagram poets have book contracts that's you know worked it's innovation again of course if you think about it comics and graphic novels are constantly sort of you know pushing the limits of what a story is and how it needs to be told There's this book that I was very intrigued by that I read this year that Bloomsbury published called I Want to Eat Dick Bookie. I know I think it was called I Want to Die but I Want to Eat Dick Bookie which is which I recommend uh which is a person's kind of journey into exploring her uh mental health mm-hmm. and its conversations she has with her shrink. That's the book. It's basically mm-hmm. diaries um journal entries it's uh actual transcripts of course edited transcripts of conversations that she has with her uh psychotherapist and where she's processing you know issues of shame 
body image issues, uh, you know, extremely low self-esteem, um, psychosis, uh, you know, getting in her head, her inner saboteur. And it's really, really voyeuristic to be reading something like this. Right. Um, because it's someone has been kind enough to let you and give you access uh, into their really private inner interior world. Mm-hmm. I would be livid if someone had access to my therapy notes and I diligently take notes during therapy, before therapy, after therapy. But here is someone who's made that into material, of course, like names that are anonymized, so therapist is anonymized, she consented to being part of the book, blah, 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 blah. And I thought this was such a fresh and such a yeah. refreshing way to do a book. It doesn't have a middle, it doesn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an end. Like that's the classic Aristotelian story structure, by the way, the Greek structure, which is what is the most universally resounding mm-hmm. uh, resonant structure. Why it works is because audiences like resolution. Reward. They okay. like yeah. they like resolution reward. This form has this structure of a story has been around for a few hundred years. I'm sure there is something to it by that it doesn't fail. But of course, with a whodunit or a thriller or a mystery, this formula doesn't work. So there's yeah. various formulas and sub-formulas for various genres and sh- sub-genres. The, yeah. the canon doesn't move away. The, the, the core doesn't get shaken. But on the periphery is happening this really exciting dance, right? Or on the limits of a story, the the structure of a story, the form of the story, the nature in which it is told. And I think uh, it's an exciting time, flash fiction, short fiction, experimental fiction, a lot of that is happening, speculative fiction, fan fiction. I mean, mm. it's, a, it's a very exciting list. And, and traditional publishing gets a little worked up. They get a little stressed out with, with I will admit, they get a little stressed out when it comes to really yeah. edgy experimental stuff. But if you just open up the landscape and look at independent, smaller publishing houses mm-hmm. who are doing such fantastic work, who are doing such incredible work, people are publishing zines and chapbooks, uh, people are doing some great work. And sometimes traditional large publishing houses take a while to catch up uh, yeah. to those in- innovative aspects, um, which uh, innovate the form itself and and sort of break the boundaries of how a story is told but this is also actually making me think of like jack kerouac and like the the beat generation right because even now like on the road for example is considered to be like a classic book you know in american literature but the time that it came out there was just so much like criticism around it also because it kind of like attacked or I mean it was yeah it was non-conformist right in a way like it was more about like spontaneous prose it was about you know improvisation and like now if you look back I feel like there are so many artists that have like been inspired by that beat generation like one of my favorite directors is Richard Linklater and that kind of like spontaneity I feel like it has definitely like transferred into his like filmmaking styles if you think about like the movie Before Sunrise that's a film that doesn't have necessarily a beginning, middle and an end in the traditional form, but it also tells a story. Um, and it ends on this like cliffhanger. And it, it, like, I think that that watching that film, that was the first time I had like that. Oh, my God. Wow. Moment where I was just like, I didn't know that you could tell a story in this way. Um, so it's it's interesting, right? Because there are like now when we look back at like the beat generation, we're like, oh, that they changed 
um, uh, you know, the course of culture in, in this way and they influence so many artists as a result of it. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see like what are the different ways in which people because a lot of these ideas originate with books like we're I think that's something that we're also like constantly going back to which is that films are inspired by books and there's so many adaptations that are happening so it's it's a it's a very interesting form it's a limited form but it's an interesting form where when there is experimentation that happens with it it has a huge impact I think I would say it is a very interesting form for sure because yeah. it's been around for centuries something has worked in the form's favor <laughs> that yeah, it outlasted yeah. 100%. um yeah because you know when the radio came and when the gramophone came and when the floppy disk came and when the cd disk came and when uh walkmans came and when um ipods came they kept saying the same thing is the, the print is books? dying yeah. it's the end of end of print and print yeah. has survived um since gutenberg's print capitalism print technology is 700 odd years old it simply refuses to die so there is something working for it um people have been an- anxious about announcing its obituary for the past 2 3 centuries you know when with accelerated yeah. sort of growth in technology and stuff but all of them have been have been sort of dismissed as premature obituaries it didn't work you know it's uh, it's going to outlive the three of us i want to assure you Uh, mm-hmm. Long after we are gone, books are going to be around, um, and I hope they do. Since we're like back to talking about books and reading, how open question to both of you, and I'll take a shot at it as well. But how do you choose the books that you want to read? Like, what is it that draws you to a book? And is there anything that you've noticed from like your own personal journey of like curating your TBR lists or like selecting books? Like, wh- are there any ways in which you could even say that like, oh, this is This is the way to select a book that you would enjoy. Um should I take that first and I am? Sure. Go for it. Okay. So because I'm an industry insider, I I have access to early intel on what books are coming long before let's say the general public gets to know what's coming and uh, the literary merits or the the general merits of a book is something we are able to test basis perception industry perception what's happening we get to know um what are the most anticipated books but to people who you know want to know how to prepare their tbr uh, list i recommend that they uh, kind of scavenge through the most anticipated books list that pretty much every publication prepares you know including your vogue to the new york times to the new yorker to the scrolls of the world everyone puts together year end anticipated books for next year and then year end wrapped like spotify does the year end wrapped of the most celebrated books of this year mm-hmm. um so i do apart from in- industry intel i get i basically get into the time magazine the guardian uh the new york times and then various indian publications 100 most or 50 most or 30 most recommended books and i read their plot summaries i literally look up the writers i yeah. i look up those books i read their plot summaries i look up the publishing houses and if it speaks to me if and i try and look up excerpts because pretty much all of these books if they've been around for a year they've been excerpted so if the excerpt is somewhere out in the world uh, behind, which is not behind a paywall and easy to access if the writing its flavor speaks to me 
I started make then long lists of which I make short lists. If there's a book that recurs in other lists, you know, if it's concurrently happening in many people's recommendation lists, I sort of it it goes to my final list, and then it gets added to my cart and wish list, and then the book sort of appears whether in my audiobook files or whether in my Kindle or whether as a print edition. Um, friends recommend books to me. I re- I recommend friend uh, books to. Um, friends um so that you know informal networks so all of these are the ways in which i decide what to read and i'm i'm very very okay with dropping a book despite it being highly recommended if it simply doesn't speak to me and that's something i i very strongly believe that if you're not enjoying the book drop it yeah i no <laughs> it i doesn't it doesn't deserve you I no it doesn't deserve <laughs> that's you. something that I feel like I need to internalize deeply and and just you know don't feel this pressure to finish it but if um, the book is not serving you know do not serve it back yeah. Yeah. yeah for me too I think I think I look a lot I look at like New York Times bestseller list year end list quite a bit but something that I do a lot with music and I think like increasingly I want to start doing this more with books is I really like I really like being recommended things. So I I do like whenever my friends recommend music to me, I will listen to it and I will check that out because I don't know, for me it's a way of like feeling closer to that person or understanding them better. But I also do that with artists that I admire. So I I will find myself like searching for interviews where maybe like artists have like talked about like albums that were really meaningful to them or they've listed their influences. Um and then I I think there's a bunch of books that I I can't name right now but I've definitely read that way where like oh this artist talked about this book and it had like a real impact on them and I'm like oh that's really cool and it's just a way for me to like get like it's there's like additional context to it and it's a way for me to sort of approach a book um within that within that with that lens basically and that's that's a really that's one way in which I look for things um and the other thing is like going back to just um who i was when i was younger i think like i used to at that time most of the books that i would discover were at a bookstore and i know like bookstores are increasingly becoming like more and more obsolete but there is this there is this like i don't know like you know you you go to a bookstore and then you touch feel skim through the book and then there's like this gut feeling almost that like you will enjoy it and um sometimes you are disappointed but and maybe i wasn't as advanced a reader when i was a child but i just remember f- i just remember like as i look back that most of the books that i had picked out for myself um you know i i used to enjoy them and maybe it's because in a way you kind of already develop a relationship with the book before you start reading it or i don't know what it is but i do feel like i do feel like we Are we should sure go back to books right now <laughs> i'm just like getting existential about this but i do feel like we should return to the bookstore there's like a real magic in a bookstore That's yeah. a great that's a great point. Yes, please please support your local bookstores. <laughs> you will be stunned at the discoveries you will make about the kind of books you would never have possibly encountered if you just did these lists and mm-hmm. you know, uh spoke to friends or looked at the internet as your only sources of uh how to pick a book. You'll be surprised how much your local bookstore retailer and seller knows about uh books and uh, knows what's moving and yeah. they yeah. will always recommend a book that you you are bound to like so yeah. if you haven't in a while go to your local bookstore and ask your bookseller you know for a recommendation yeah i 
I feel like my way of choosing which books to read and buy is like very unstructured and I go by vibes <laughs> or like what I'm feeling for the most part. But I think the last uh, books, the last few books that I bought were me having a vague idea of what I want to read and someone at the at a bookstore recommending me a book. And I feel like, for example, right now, I... I think a question that I obsess over is what is cultural influence? What is influential? What's going to stand the test of time? I think about that a lot. And I feel like the list of books that I've been sort of going back to leaving halfway, even even if I'm leaving them halfway, sorry, um, there's a set which is more directly about like, an exploration of culture and how it's evolving. So I think it started with Desperately Seeking Shah Rukh, which cannot sing enough praises about that book. But once I think even like as good as the book is and as great an analysis it is, I think what I really enjoyed also was the feeling of almost joining Shrayana in her journeys of like going for field surveys, interviewing these women. And I liked almost accompanying her. So then I wanted to, I guess the genre of book in my mind was like female driven reportage based explorations of unasked questions, which is very specific. Mm -hmm. But that's what <laughs> then, that's what then led me to Snigda Poonam with the dreamers. And it, Go down it, that rabbit hole. Yeah, you know? it scratched it scratched that itch. And then after that, I'm like, algorithm, do do your magic, recommend more books. And then the next book I like I sought out was The Newlyweds by Mansi Choksi, which is oh, again what a great book. <laughs> which is all like in the same genre of books. So I feel like gen just sort of doing it um organically, I think I, I prefer that. And the other thing that I'm very interested in, although I've not follow through with this mission of mine is to look at new young adult books because I feel like the books that we grow up with are going to be like molding future writers. So I bought this book which I've read like 80 pages of before I realized that it's not a very like well-written book uh, is called The Keeper of the Lost Cities by Shannon Messenger and like um the bookstore, the bookstore dude, he said, you should read this, like kids really like this. So I think I still need to get myself into the mindset of like a 13 year old while approaching these books. But I think that is super. I love that for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, that's how I've been thinking about books lately. Thanks so much for listening. Dude, I was thinking is hosted by Sanaya Chandar and Ketki Sharma. Our producer for this episode is Yash Hirave. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Be sure to follow us at DIWT Pod on Twitter and at Dude I Was Thinking on Instagram. If you have a fleeting thought you'd like us to dissect and analyze or want to collaborate, write to us at dudeiwasthinking at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>